Oh my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict Ironjaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That that way. Way. Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, a skeleton covered in human flesh, Josh Baker, covers six new-to-me horror movies with a random, a spooky topic seven at the end. This episode features vampire hunters, folk death, and bad killers. Before we jump into things, if you like the podcast, leave a rating on iTunes. It'll make me smile. You can also email blankisthekiller at gmail.com with any questions, corrections, recommendations you may have. Now, put on a ridiculous leather outfit as we join Blade on the hunt for vampires. He totally won't mind some extra help. Number 1, Blade 2, 2002, directed by Guillermo del Toro. Blade tracks down Whistler, who turned into a vampire after killing himself, Whistler is cured. Blade also has another human in his crew named Scud. Vampires ask Blade to team up with them to kill a new threat, Reapers. Blade agrees and is joined by a group called the Blood Pack that works with him to track down the Reapers. Blade and his team kill all but the main Reaper. Blade is betrayed by Scud, who is a familiar, and some vampires. The old vampire that hired Blade reveals that he made the Reapers, and the main one is his son. The son kills his dad, and Blade kills the son. Reapers and Chupa are the killers. Chupa is a vampire that killed other vampires for no reason. I know that Blade is also a vampire that kills vampires, but Chupa is part of the vampire society. I don't recall any vampires killing humans in this one, so that's why they aren't included on the list. As you can tell by the summary, all Blade movies are silly. This is the second time I've seen Guillermo del Toro direct an action movie, the first being Pacific Rim. Wait, that's a complete lie. The first and second action movies I've seen from him would be the Hellboy movies. The Hellboy movies are much better and more entertaining than the Blade movies. I'm still enjoying the campy, silly, silly, fun time Blade series, but the Hellboy movies are objectively better. I'm assuming Del Toro made Blade 2 as a sort of stepping stone to make Hellboy. Scud wears the Hellboy shirt in Blade 2, which is all the proof I need that that's correct. Donnie Yen is one of the Blood Pack members in this movie. He was also one of the fight choreographers, which explains why the fights are so much better in Blade 2. A lot of things are better in Blade 2. The makeup effects for the Reapers look good. The practical effects for the Reapers' mandibles look incredible. The CGI for them could have been worse. 
The first time we see a Reaper open wide, it's CGI, so I was really glad to see practical effects used for their creepy mouth openings later on in the movie. The practical effects used for the Reaper autopsy are amazing. If you don't have a lot of time but want to see some incredible practical effects, you gotta check out the Blade 2 Reaper autopsy. Besides the effects for the Reapers and whatnot, Blade 2 also has a bunch of really neat prop guns. The guns are mostly useless in the movie, but they look super cool. The acting from the villains in Blade 2 is much better than in the first installment. Wesley Snipes' delivery is still super hammy, but I like the camp that his Blade brings. One thing I wasn't really a fan of was the change to the vampire deaths. Instead of turning quickly into skeleton dust, they now explode into sparks. The CGI for this does look a little better than it was for the deaths in part 1, but it still doesn't look great. My favorite part of the first movie is when a vampire's flesh tears apart when he's left out in the sun. In Blade 2, Blade casually walks out into the sun with a lady vampire that has the hots for him in his arms. She has to die because she's been infected with the Reaper virus. She's in the sun and slowly and beautifully begins turning into dust. What? Blade 1 showed me that that kind of death should be absolutely horrifying. You can't change that for a lame scene where Blade helps a girl he hasn't shown any interest in die. It still could have been beautiful with the crazy tearing and practical effects in a different way. Beautiful that the girl would willingly pay for her family's sins kind of thing. Ron Perlman is in Blade 2. He has one of the grossest haircuts I've ever seen. I'll try to explain it. You know how you can get a strap that helps keep your glasses on that makes you look like an uber nerd? Well, Ron's hair is all shaved off except for a strap of hair that's left to keep his handlebar mustache from falling off. It's as ridiculous as it sounds. He basically looks like a buff Dr. Phil. Eventually, it's revealed that the Reapers can only be killed with UV light. Sure, you can also stab their hearts with silver, but it's almost impossible to do that. After everyone learns that the Reapers can only really be killed with UV light, they all stop using guns and swords, which have shown to be completely ineffective, right? Nope. Vampires are dead. Their hearts no longer work. It makes sense that their brains don't work either. Members of the Blood Pack that specifically know they need to use UV light just continue shooting and flailing swords around when attacking the Reapers. There are some vampire security guards that might not have gotten the memo that bullets don't work against reapers, so it's understandable that they keep shooting at them at least. It doesn't make any sense when all of the shown to be heavily armed guards decide to fight Blade with their fists instead of riddling him with bullets though. Almost every time Scud is on screen, there's a TV playing Powerpuff Girls nearby. Del Toro originally wanted the TVs to show Speed Racer. I would love to see Del Toro do a live-action Powerpuff Girls movie. One thing I really dislike in movies or TV is when your villain or villains are generic and all look the same. All the Reapers are bald and look almost exactly the same. You can barely tell Subject Zero apart from the others. Blade 2 suffers a bit from this. The main Reaper guy definitely could have used a more standout outfit. His wardrobe is basically lame hobo man. Blade 2 is still an entertaining movie. 
If you want to see some campy vampire action, I recommend checking it out. Blade Trinity is coming up later in the episode. Gotta cleanse my palate with some other movies first. Number 2, Parents, 1989, directed by Bob Balaban. A young boy named Michael doesn't want to eat the food his parents give him. A school counselor thinks something weird is going on at home. She goes with Michael to his house and finds a dead body. She's killed by one of the parents. Michael's parents are full-blown cannibals. Michael stabs his dad. The dad tries to kill Michael, but the mom stabs the dad. The dad kills the mom and succumbs to his wounds. The house burns down. Michael goes to live with his grandparents, who also appear to be cannibals. The parents are the killers. Parents is listed as a black comedy horror film. Problem is, whoever wrote the movie forgot to include any comedy. To be fair to the writer, Christopher Hawthorne, maybe the script was funny. I think I only smirked once during the movie and it was at the kid being weird, not an actual joke. The whole idea of parents is that they've been feeding their son, Michael, human meat for years, and he all of a sudden realizes this and doesn't want to eat it anymore. I don't want to be rude and tell cannibal parents how to raise their children, but why not be more open about eating human meat so that the kid doesn't freak out when he realizes this fact later on in life? Michael, there are starving kids all over the world that don't get to eat fresh human meat without murdering the victims themselves. You're being handed perfectly cooked kidneys. Finish your kidneys or no dessert, you ingrate. I definitely went in with the wrong expectations when watching Parents. I thought it would be more like Serial Mom but with cannibalism. But it's kind of a slow burn where you wonder if Michael is crazy or just his parents. If you read the summary for Parents on Amazon Prime, it ends with the sentence, They're the all-American family of 1954, with one small exception, the parents are cannibals. I might have been more on the edge of my seat if I didn't know they were eating humans from the get-go. Thanks, Amazon. Parents is boring. Nothing really happens. Michael tries to be sneaky every once in a while and is always caught by his father, but since there aren't really any consequences when he's caught, there's no suspense. Even though the plot of the movie is dull and uninteresting, Parents is shot incredibly well. The production design is great. The cinematography tried its darndest to keep me entertained. There are interesting angles, camera movement, shot composition. Here are some standouts. The counselor finds the dead body and screams. We then follow the screen from the basement all the way through the chimney. Well, I don't think it was exactly a chimney, but some type of exhaust on the roof. There's one scene that is shown only from feet level that showed a lot about the parents' relationship. When the parents come out about the meat, we get a shot where the dinner table spins around the room, which looked super neat. I wish that a more interesting movie was showcased with all this creative camera work. Ernest Day and Robin Vigeon are credited as the directors of photography. I'm also going to assume that Bob Balaban had a hand in making the movie look amazing, so kudos to those three. I'm not going to rescind the kudos, but I just remembered that a terrible low frame rate slow motion effect was overused throughout the entire movie. I was not a fan of that. I don't think low frame rate slow-mo ever works. Maybe I liked it in something, but nothing comes to mind. 
The acting in Parents is solid from everyone. Mary Beth Hurt and Dennis Quaid's brother are fine as the parents. Brian Madorsky played Michael and he was one believable kid. At one point in the movie, he's hiding in the pantry and sausages come to life and wrap around him. This appears to be all in his head and has no real impact on anything. Besides this surreal sausage moment, Michael also has a bunch of nightmares like one where he dives into his bed, which turns into a vast ocean of blood. Parents feels like a film student's first attempt at being thought-provoking. Only the visuals are entertaining. I do not recommend checking out Parents. I should have watched that Ticks movie with Seth Green instead. Number 3, Midsummer, 2019, directed by Ari Aster. Hey, there be spoilers ahead, matey. If you've listened to an episode of the podcast before, or even just the first part of this episode, you know that the landlubber Josh Baker spoils everything. If you don't want Midsummer spoiled, skip to 21 minutes 50 seconds. Thanks for the warning, spoiler beard, you nefarious seafaring anti-spoiler pirate captain. What a guy. Round of applause for Spoiler Beard's first and hopefully last appearance on the podcast. We are now entering spoiler territory. 3, 2, 1, Midsummer, 2019, directed by Ari Aster. A girl named Danny accompanies her terrible boyfriend Christian and his friends to Sweden after Danny's sister kills herself and their parents. One of the boyfriend's buds, Pella, is from Sweden and takes everyone to a midsummer festival and a commune where he grew up. Disturbing events take place, all the outsiders start getting offed, Danny becomes the May Queen and Christian impregnates one of the commune girls. The commune then completes a ritual in which nine people are sacrificed, Danny chooses Christian to be the ninth. Danny cries, but then smiles. Danny's sister and the commune are the killers. Danny's forced to choose someone to sacrifice since she ended up the May Queen, so I'm not putting her on the list. The movie ends with her becoming a full member of the commune, so in a way, she's on the list anyway. Real quick, I want to get on a soapbox. People who make trailers, stop spoiling things. The first trailer for Midsummer was great. It teased stuff. You got a small taste of what was to come. Then trailer 2 came out and we learned all about Danny and Christian's relationship and that Danny was invited to go on the Sweden trip because of what she's been going through. Due to that trailer, as soon as I read the message Danny got from her sister, I knew without a doubt that the sister and parents were dead. That intro should be suspenseful with a great disturbing reveal. But the awful spoiler trailer, or troiler, if you will, ruined that moment for me. I know that people involved with actually creating the movie rarely have any hand at all in making the trailers, which makes troilers even more infuriating to me. Alright, now on to talking about the actual movie. Midsummer is incredible. It's an amazing experience that's masterfully crafted. After seeing Midsummer, I checked out all of Ari Aster's short films that he wrote and directed, and the leap from those shorts to Hereditary and Midsummer is huge. That's not to say the shorts are bad, I enjoyed watching all of them, it's just mind-boggling that someone can go from making short films that have some issues to perfectly crafted features. That must be the power of money. 
Watching Aster's shorts and seeing the features he made after them is insanely inspiring. Fun fact, Aster's first short, There's Something Strange About the Johnsons, starts off the same way as my first short, The Bloody Reuben, with someone jacking it. Great minds think alike. The Bloody Reuben with a studio budget. What a beautiful movie that would be. All of Aster's shorts can be viewed on Vimeo. Midsummer. Midsummer is gorgeous. It's one of the most beautiful movies I've ever seen. I can barely wrap my head around the amount of effort that must have gone into the stunning production design, the construction, meticulous painting, the aging. Holy moly, if you told me this commune was in fact real and the buildings shown in the movie have existed for hundreds of years, I'd believe you. The whole community in the movie was built in only two months. The costumes, quilts, buildings, gore, makeup effects, everything in Midsummer looks fantastic. Let's go over the gore. Like Hereditary, we get up close and personal with some head gore. Two old people jump to their deaths, as you do when you make it to your 70s. One sticks the landing with her face and dies instantly. The gore is incredible and disturbing. All the gore looks great. The second oldie jumps in, totally beefs it. He lands feet first like a moron, so some of the commune members have to slowly make their way over to him and take turns bashing his head in with a giant mallet, as is necessary in these situations. Two mallet swings are devastating. One mallet swing is comical and doesn't look right. The weird mallet swing that has no real effect on the head is the only instance of, huh? I had while watching the movie. Speaking of a comical mallet swing to the face, I 100% consider Midsummer to be a horror comedy. There is great humor throughout, from people tripping to a very unique sex scene. Midsummer is filled with comedic moments that work. Like when Christian ends up paralyzed, stuffed inside a bear. Trust me, it's hilarious. One quick side note regarding Christian's name. I'm pretty sure it's supposed to be Christian, but remember it being pronounced differently depending on who said the name. Danny refers to him as Christian for some reason. Back to the gore. The group fool ends up being skinned and worn by a local after the fool pees on an ancestral tree. You only see the skin being worn, not removed. Another outsider starts taking pictures of a book they were told not to photograph, so they get a boop on the head with a mallet, which isn't disturbing due to the gore, but more the sounds the actor makes while on the ground. Another outsider gets a classic Norse blood eagle. We see the aftermath only. Oh, you've never heard of a blood eagle? It's a form of execution where you cut open the victim's back and pull their lungs out of the holes while they're still alive, which makes it look like they have wings. Fun, right? Something similar was shown in the fifth episode of the Hannibal TV series. Two naked people had their backs cut open and positioned to look like wings. In the show, they were dead, and it was only their back skin and muscle that was used to make the wings, not their lungs. I listened to an interview with the show's writer, Brian Fuller, about the scene. He said standards and practices told him he couldn't show bare asses on TV, so he asked if he could show it if the ass cracks were filled with blood. That was fine. You can see two people with their backs flayed open into gruesome wings as long as you don't show any clear shots of non-sexualized butts. 
The United States of America, everybody. Back to Midsummer. Danny's sister killed herself and her parents with exhaust fumes from the family cars. She ran tubing to the parents' bedroom door and straight to her own mouth. Her body reveal is haunting. I saw my first walkout ever. A lady left the theater after the old folks jumped to their deaths. The acting is fantastic from everyone except Jack Rayner who plays Christian. His character isn't written all that well though, so maybe it's not all his fault. His character is 100% unlikable. He has no redeeming qualities. I wish he wasn't written as such a one-note terrible boyfriend. I am mostly blaming the bad performance on Rainer though. He did one reaction face throughout the entire movie. Florence Pugh plays Danny. She was also in Malevolent, a movie I covered way back in episode 30 of the podcast. I didn't recognize her at all. Her performance as Danny is amazing. She's great at encapsulating the grief and despair needed for the role. She's definitely the standout actor in Midsummer. William Jackson Harper is good, but his character is basically the same as the character he plays in The Good Place named Chidi. The score is fitting and not overbearing. It's a very atmospheric score. Like Hereditary, Midsummer also features a bunch of naked old people. Aster loves him oodles of old naked peeps. Midsummer is a phenomenal movie that fans of cinema need to check out in theater. It's an experience that's overflowing with color and perfectly framed shots. I know that there's going to be a group of people that hate it for arbitrary reasons like it not being scary. I didn't find it scary, but that's not important in the least. Midsummer is a great work of art no matter what genre you want to label it, be it a horror movie, comedy, slice of life, fish out of water story. It's a movie that I highly recommend. I'll be checking out whatever Ari Aster does next. Number 4, Culture Shock 2019, directed by Gigi Saw Guerrero. A pregnant woman named Mary Soul attempts to cross the border into the United States for a second time. She, a kid named Ricky, and a tatted up guy named Santo almost make it when the cartel pops up. Mary Soul wakes up in what she's told is America. She sees Ricky and Santo, who appear to be brainwashed. She's able to snap them out of it by saying things they remember in Spanish. Mary Soul follows a man named Thomas and ends up in a lab. The America she was in was a virtual reality where people are imprisoned. She teams up with Thomas, who's revealed to be an American that works in the lab, and Santo to help everyone escape. Ricky died before the escape. Thomas shoots and kills his boss. The Mexicans escape. Some go to the US and others, including Marisol, decide to go back to Mexico. The conservative US News then calls the Mexicans terrorists. The lab workers, Thomas, and the cartel are the killers. We see the cartel kill a guy at the border. Thomas's boss is a huge jerk, but the boss is in no way threatening Thomas's life when Thomas decides to release the life jelly out of his body. Even if you think the boss deserved to die, which could definitely be argued, Thomas still worked at the lab while innocents were dying. Culture Shock, the 10th Hulu Into the Dark movie. We've made it this far, folks. Sad thing is, I could still only recommend four of the movies, two of which are fun bad, because Culture Shock is garbage. 
It's the Matrix, except the human race are Mexicans and the robots are the United States. The Matrix didn't include completely pointless sexual violence. In Culture Shock, we have a female character. Should we write her as an interesting character that has basic motivations to attempt the trip from Mexico to the US? Nah, why would we do any of that when we can just use rape? Oh yeah, see I didn't even add that in the summary since it literally has no point in the story. During Mary Soul's original trip, a man she considers her boyfriend named Oscar forces himself on her which gets her pregnant. Does this have any impact on the story? Absolutely not. Could this entire sequence have been replaced with Oscar instead bailing on his already pregnant at the border girlfriend and leaving her and his unborn child for dead? Absolutely. What appears to be the motivation for Mary Sol to leave Mexico? Well, obviously she's from the Lincoln Park of Mexico where they're raping everyone out there. Writers, why? Can you not do better than this? Is this baby's first attempt at shocking content? The cartels are a scary enough idea. You ever hear of the 2011 San Fernando Massacre? It's unbelievably awful. Sexual violence is very real, but that doesn't mean you need to insert it in your movie when it has no impact on the story. Have general violence in danger be the reason Mary Saul wants to leave. Mary Saul ends up finding Oscar at the lab and killing him, which I would have been fine with even if he just left her for dead while she was consensually pregnant. Writers, stop inserting sexual violence when there are so many other ways you can write a dreadful scene. Unless it is an integral part of the story. Moving on. In Culture Shock, the head of the lab is Creed Bratton. Yes, the guy from The Office. How am I supposed to believe that Creed is in charge of anything? Anyone who has finished The Office will only be able to see the bumbling weirdo from Quality Assurance. He's probably fine in Culture Shock, but I can only see Creed when looking at him. Barbara Crampton pops up as an NPC in the virtual world that tries to monitor Marisol. She does a good job and it was nice to see her. Martha Igoretta plays Marisol and she's solid. At the beginning of the movie, she heavily resembles Sandra Bullock in Bird Box. Both characters are pregnant too, so I was half expecting everyone to start killing themselves. I saw another movie that Igreta played a small role in called Borderland some 10 years ago that I remember being okay. Sean from Boy Meets World stars in it. If I remember correctly, Igreta plays the single mom that Sean falls for near the border. Culture Shock might be a prequel. Iceman from the X-Men plays Thomas and he's in the movie. My favorite character in the movie is Preppy Santo who's played by Richard Cabral. In Culture Shock's real world, he's tatted up and heavily implied to be a hitman. In VR America, while he's brainwashed, he's a preppy nerd that's truly a delight. While in VR America, there's multiple scenes where people scarf down food. The first food to be devoured is pizza, and the scene is surreally comical. The captives can't get enough of that pizza. Well, that's because they literally can't stop eating it due to the food tubes pumping brown goop down their gullets. Kudos to the costume and production design of VR America. That part of the movie was great. 
The camera stopped shaking erratically, and the surreal and vibrant suburb looked fantastic. If having shaky camera while not in VR America was a stylistic choice, it was a bad one. The lack of color and darkness of the non-VR America world was enough to get the point across that the real world isn't a beautiful place. I don't think Mexico and the lab had to look that ugly, though. I'm supposed to believe that this dirty industrial lab somehow has this amazing matrix technology. I think I would have been able to suspend my disbelief more if the lab looked more like a high-tech hospital than something out of the Saw movies. As soon as Marisol wakes up in Weird Ass America, aka VR America, for a brief second, well, for a few minutes, I thought Culture Shock was literally going to be Get Out. All the people Mary Saul knew are acting like preppy old white people. They must have had old white people brains put in their bodies. Come to think of it, it's never explained why everyone but Mary Saul acts completely different. I think there's a quick line of dialogue that says, VR not work right cause pregnant. Sure, whatever. If you're going to trap people in a Matrix world, why would you make a lame-ass America suburb? Make it dope so people don't want to leave. Welcome to Dope Moon Paradise Funland, new friend. I think the Matrix might have explained why the world in that movie couldn't be super awesome, but I don't remember the reason. Something happened so quickly that I almost forgot about it. After ejecting from VR America to begin the big escape, Mary Soul has her baby in like two minutes. It's the fastest birth of all time. Right after giving birth, she's also ready to run back to Mexico. What's in that brown goop she's been eating? It must be filled with crazy steroids or something. Culture Shock is another swing and a miss from Hulu's Into the Dark. I need to hit up Jason Blum for some money to make a movie because it appears he's just handing dough out to anyone. Don't waste your time with Culture Shock. It's not the worst Into the Dark movie, but it's not worth your time either. It looks like Gigi Saw Guerrero and her production company Luchagor Productions has done other stuff that looks a lot better than Culture Shock. I really like their short The Cole that I was able to find on their Vimeo account. Culture Shock is missing the fun factor that appears present in their other work. I'll check out more when I'm able to find it since reading the descriptions for their other shorts make them sound crazy appealing like the one about a guy forced into wrestling after a mask is sewn into his face. Number 5, Piercing 2018, directed by Nicholas Pesch. A man named Reed with a newborn child decides it's time to kill someone. He books a hotel room and meticulously plans the murder. Things go awry when the prostitute that shows up named Jackie goes off the script Reed planned. Jackie stabs herself multiple times in the leg. Reed takes her to the hospital. They then go back to her house where Jackie asks if they can eat before engaging in any bondage. Jackie drugs Reed and bludgeons him with a can opener. Reed tries to take back control, but Jackie ends up on top of him wielding an ice pick he planned to use as the murder weapon. Reed asks if they can eat first. No one is the killer. Reed wanted to be the killer though. He allegedly stabbed a woman before, but I'm pretty sure she lived. We see a pet warning, little girl kill a rabbit while Reed's tripping on Halcyon, a sedative Jackie drugged him with. The rabbit killing is more implied than actually shown. It's confusing. 
I guess the little girl is the killer since she furiously stabbed a rabbit to death, but I'm not sure if that actually happened. The rabbit and stabbed woman are alluded to during a conversation between Reed and his wife, but what actually happened regarding those two incidents isn't explicitly stated. The incidents are only expanded on during a hallucination, so there's no way for me to know what actually happened. Piercing is Pesh's follow-up to The Eyes of My Mother, a movie I covered on a previous episode that I loved, so I went in with high expectations. Before watching, I saw that the movie is rated NC-17, which made me think there was going to be some brutal gore or in-your-face sex stuff. There's some intense gore and there is nudity, but I didn't find anything to be NC-17 worthy. Jackie does pierce her nipple, which is possibly the reason for the rating. The MPAA is a mysterious bunch of morons, so who knows. Lindsay Lohan pierces her ear in the same fashion in Parent Trap, and that movie's PG. Much more weird sex, nudity, and gore was in Midsummer, and that was only rated R, so the lesson is, if you have clout, or your movie is in black and white, see The Eyes of My Mother, you can get an R rating. For more on the ass hattery of the MPAA, I highly recommend checking out the documentary This Film Is Not Yet Rated. What was I talking about? MPAA, weird girl, nipple piercing, oh yeah, piercing. The movie stars Christopher Abbott and Mia Wasikowska as Reed and Jackie respectively. You only see nine actual people in the movie, and one of them is a baby. Abbott is incredible as a neurotic, meticulous Reed. He was also in It Comes at Night and Vox Lux. I wasn't a big fan of It Comes at Night and think Vox Lux is incredible. I remember him in the former and his acting was strong in that also. Mia Wasikowska's performance is also solid as the impossible to read prostitute. She's been in a ton of things, Crimson Peak, Only Lovers Left Alive, and Stoker. I don't think I've ever talked about Stoker on the podcast, but it's an awesome movie and Park Chan-wook, an amazing Korean director's first English feature. He directed the Vengeance Trilogy, which includes Old Boy, and some other great movies like I Am a Cyborg, But That's Okay, Thirst, and The Handmaiden. Park Chan-wook is one of my favorite directors. Nicholas Pesh is also becoming one of my favorites. Right after watching Piercing, I didn't like it that much. Here I was at the end of an hour and 22 minute viewing in which barely anything had happened in the movie. I originally felt the end was unsatisfying as it left off on a callback and cliffhanger. Thing is, I was never bored during Piercing. Even though not much happens, I was enthralled. I want to say that's due to the strong acting and incredible production design. The film world is stunning. I want to say miniatures were used to bring the city to life. Maybe it was CGI made to look like miniatures, but either way, the design of the hotel and the building interiors is fantastic and stylistic. The phones present in the film are magnificent. Both phones are from Iskraco, the largest electronics company in Yugoslavia in the 70s. They're absolutely perfect for this fairy tale esque world and really adds to the anachronistic feel of the film. The color palette of the movie is warm and heavy on dark reds. 
The story basically takes a backseat to the beautiful imagery. Every once in a while, the beauty is balanced by disturbing gore, like when Jackie plunges a pair of scissors into her leg over and over, or when gashes are left all over Reed as he's smacked about with a can opener. The gore is grotesque and practically executed. Piercing also includes strange, surreal moments, like two people in full latex outfits going at it, a weird little monster alien creature, and a moment when Reed's baby talks to him. My favorite sequence in the movie is when Reed times himself while pretending to kill someone, and all the sound effects of the actual process are added over him, miming all the actions from stabbing, cutting up the body, and cleaning up. Why did Reed even want to kill a prostitute with an ice pick? Well, he had to satisfy the urge to stab his baby with said ice pick somehow. Even though not much happens, I dug piercing quite a bit. This movie isn't going to be for everyone. It's a little artsy-fartsy, and the story itself is purposefully not very satisfying. But if you want to see an alluring movie with bits of intense gore thrown in, Piercing is the movie for you. Fun fact, Piercing is based on a book with the same name by Ryu Murakami. One of his other works was also adapted into a well-known horror movie. The other book is Audition, which was turned into a movie by Takashi Miike. It's been a long time since I've seen Audition, but I don't remember loving it. I think that was due to how much it was hyped up as being one of the most disturbing movies of all time. I need to check it out again at some point. I plan on watching Mike's Visitor Q sometime in the near future, but I know what y'all have all been waiting for this episode. Number 6, Blade Trinity, 2004, directed by David S. Goyer. Some vampires find and resurrect Dracula. Blade is tricked into killing a human in public. The FBI shows up to Blade's hideout. Blade and Whistler kill some SWAT team members before Whistler, who's been shot a bunch, blows up the whole hideout, thus killing himself and everyone inside. Blade is arrested and vampires show up. Human vampire hunters called Night Stalkers appear and save Blade. The Night Stalkers are working on a virus that will kill all vampires. Dracula kills a bunch of Night Stalkers. Blade kills Dracula with an arrow housing the virus, which forms with Drac's blood, becoming super effective. All full vampires die. Blade is still alive. Blade, Whistler, Vampires, and Dracula are the killers. Not all of the FBI and SWAT were familiars, making Blade and Whistler killers. Y'all, I'm sick of Blade movies. The entertainment factor wears off real quick. The action in Blade Trinity is garbage. We're back to using the awful punch sound effects and having terrible sword fights during the climax for no reason. I want to do a brief exercise with you listeners. You're making a movie, and one of the characters in it is Dracula. Now, you've already designed Dracula's final form, where he looks like a dope giant monster man. It looks great. You should pat yourself on the back for how amazing armor-clad Big Drac looks. Thing is, you now have to cast an actor to be Drac's human form. I want you to think of actors you'd cast as Dracula. Take your time. Don't dwell on the fact that some jackass decided to call Dracula Drake for short instead of 
Drake. Drake isn't an intimidating name. I guess the wheelchair rapper wasn't a thing when Blade Trinity was released. Well, Drake would be just as bad as the actual casting choice for Dracula. Meh, he'd actually be a better choice than the real pick. So, who did you choose to play Dracula? Somebody with fierce hair on their head and face? An old, distinguished gentleman? A person with unique facial features? Maybe even a badass lady? As long as you chose anyone besides Drake the Rapper or that guy from Prison Break, you made a great decision. That's right, folks. Dracula is played by none other than that dude from Prison Break. I don't even know his name. I don't think anyone does. Let's see. Dominic Purcell? Ew. That name perfectly fits this guy. I know that most of you have seen the movie Spy Kids. Did you know that the Thumb Thumbs were based on Dominic Purcell? Okay, they weren't really, but I'm willing to bet some of you just nodded and thought, yeah, that makes sense. Who decided to cast a potato as Dracula? Actually, a raw, unseasoned potato is less bland than Dominic Purcell. 95% of the time Dracula is on screen, we get someone who is the visual representation of what it feels like to wear wet socks instead of a beastly monster that we know looks incredible. One of the first things we see is demonic form Dracula, who is then instantly replaced by the human equivalent of a dirt clod until the very end of the movie. There's a whole sequence where Dominic strolls around the city, sporting a shirt that shows off all his man cleavage. Not only does Dracula need a new actor, he also needs a fashion intervention. Human Drac looks like he found a trash bag full of clothes that Fabio abandoned at a Goodwill. I can't believe I'm saying this. Fabio would have been a better choice to play Dracula. Steve Buscemi, any of the Hanson brothers, some guy off the street. Anyone would have been a more interesting choice. Besides Dominic, Blade Trinity includes a bunch of other more recognizable actors. You have Natasha Lyonne, James Remar, Triple H, Jessica Biel, who turns out is an anti-vaxxer, Patton Oswalt, knockoff Daniel Craig, or Callum Keith Rennie, who no one actually knows, I just thought he looked uncannily like Daniel Craig, and Ryan Reynolds. I hated Ryan Reynolds in Blade Trinity. Watching him in this made me realize that he literally plays one character whenever he's in a comedic role. Deadpool, Detective Pikachu, his character in Blade Trinity are all the same character. His shtick normally works for me, but during almost all his time on screen in Blade, he felt completely out of place. Two other actors of note are John Michael Higgins and Parker Posey, who are both in a great mockumentary called Best in Show. Parker Posey is amazing in this. She's one of the main vampire villains and is a campy delight whenever she's on screen. They should have just let Parker Posey be Dracula. She honestly carries the movie on her back, and I wish she was given more screen time. Wesley Snipes is still Blade at least in the shots where he decided to show up on set. 
things between him and the director got real rocky. Allegedly, Snipes would only communicate through sticky notes, which he signed Blade. During one day of shooting, Wesley Snipes refused to open his eyes, so CGI had to be used. Luckily, that didn't make it into the movie. If you watch the alternate ending where Blade wakes up in the morgue, you'll be treated to his CG eyes. Blade's a lot more quippy in Blade Trinity. The character went from barely talking to dropping F-bombs every two seconds within three movies. Snipes' delivery is inherently hilarious, so I heavily enjoyed Talkative Blade. At one point, he even says Gucci Goo to a baby he catches, after Dracula uses the infant to throw a Hail Mary pass. Besides the awful punch sound effects, other obvious stock sounds litter the movie like whenever Blade's Dodge Charger peels out. The CGI looks a bit better for the vampire deaths. There's that, I guess. There's a scene where Triple H chases a van that's fast-forwarded to make him look speedy. It's comedic gold. Pet warning. For some reason, Triple H has dogs that are infected with the Reaper virus from the last movie. One of them is a Pomeranian. No, it doesn't make any sense. Ryan Reynolds tricks the dogs into running off the side of a skyscraper. It's silly, not disturbing. While most things look lame in Blade Trinity, including the new weapons and outfits, the vampires dying after being infected with the anti-vamp virus looked good, and I already talked about how neat demonic Drac looks. Whistler delivers my favorite line of dialogue in the entire trilogy. He says, Damn it, Blade! Don't you see what you're doing? I definitely find that way funnier than I should. If you've watched Blade and Blade 2, you're obligated to watch Blade Trinity. It's not a good movie. The action isn't fun. You gotta finish it though. That being said, I don't really recommend watching Blade Trinity unless you want to see Patton Oswalt play basketball. Watch something like Underworld Rise of the Lycans instead. Number 7, Los Spookies, 2019, created by Ana Fabrega and Julio Torres. Stop the podcast right now and go watch Los Spookies if you have any way to access HBO, preferably legally so your views are captured. This show needs to blow up. If something as mediocre as Stranger Things can get three seasons, each having at least eight 40-minute long episodes, Los Spookies has to get more than six 20-minute-ish long episodes due to its uniqueness alone. Los Spookies is an amazing show about a group of friends and an unnamed Spanish-speaking country who all love horror. Each episode has the gang pretend to be something spooky to help someone with a problem. For example, in the first episode, the group stages an exorcism for an old priest that is being upstaged by a younger, more handsome priest who has very glossy lips. Los Spookies is written by Ana Fabrega and Julio Torres, who also star as Tati and Andres. Tati is a goofy airhead character that works a bunch of odd jobs. Andres is an orphan who was adopted by a rich family who own a chocolate empire. All the characters in this show are amazing. The production design is fantastic, the color palettes in the show make it feel whimsical, it is honestly one of the funniest shows I have ever watched. I'm keeping this section short because I don't really want to spoil anything else. 
This is just a PSA to go watch Los Spookies. I guarantee you'll enjoy it. Unless you can't stand having to read subtitles, the show is a mix of English and Spanish. I really hope subtitles don't dissuade anyone that listens to this podcast from watching an amazing show. I hold you beautiful listeners to a high standard. If you need some big-name American stars to push you into watching the show, Fred Armisen and Carol Kane also appear in Los Spookies. Watch Los Spookies. That is all. That'll do it for Blank is the Killer 49, Vampire Hunters, Folk Death, and Bad Killers. I had a lot of fun watching the movies on this episode, even though not a lot of recommendations came out of it. If you dug the episode, leave a rating on iTunes. Email me at blankisthekiller.com. Yada, yada, yada. You know the drill by now. If you're someone that listens to the end of a podcast when you know all the juicy stuff is over, you're a very considerate listener or a completionist. I can't even explain what a rating or email would mean to me, so if you really want to brighten my day, do one or both of those things. As always, a big thanks to Sticker Fridge for hosting the podcast on their website, allowing the podcast to attack your ears from all apps. I hear they're working on something really neat that might be covered on the podcast in the future. Next episode is the big 5-0. geez 50 episodes. There's only a few landmark episode numbers in podcasting. 10, 50, 69, 100, 420, and 666. The one I most want to hit is the furthest away. Anyway, the big fat episode 50 comes out on July 28th. Until then, go watch Los Spookies and practice dancing for long periods of time while on random hallucinogenic drugs. It may be an important skill to have.